0: All right, hey everybody, welcome to the Keeper Connection Podcast. This is actually the first ever episode of the Keeper Connection Podcast, and I'm super excited today to have uh, current NC State Director of Goalkeeping, Justin Bryant. Uh, Justin has been on uh, quite an incredible journey with uh, not only in football, but specifically in goalkeeping. And I'm excited to have him on to talk about his own story in his own words and also hear his own thoughts and opinions on certain aspects of goalkeeping. So with that, Justin, welcome to the podcast, man.
1: Thanks, Andrew. Great to be here.
0: So uh, yeah, um, it'd be great if you could just, I mean, I know you've been on quite an adventure with football. But if you could give us a little breakdown as to how you got started in goalkeeping, and then where that's kind of taken you to now.
1: Sure. Um, well, I, I didn't start as a goalkeeper. When I played as a as a youth player, it, growing up in Florida, uh, I was an outfield player. But I was always sort of intrigued by playing in goal, and I would jump in goal in training every now and then. Um, and then I actually just asked the coach of the side if I could give it a try because I remember this very, very clearly. We were playing a, a game in a 100 degree weather and I was running and sweating and working and we lost in the last minute when our goalkeeper didn't even really bother trying to make a save, he just sort of put his hand out. He had no interest in, in playing that position so I volunteered at that stage and, and never looked back. Um, and I was lucky in a way with the timing. I, I started playing and came of age during the first incarnation of the original North American Soccer League uh, here in the U.S., so the you know the original New York Cosmos and Tampa Bay Rowdies, et cetera. Yeah. And so those games were on TV, and, and um, I was only about a two-hour drive from Tampa, and so I would go to Tampa to see games in person and, and watched every game on TV that I could. And uh, I, I don't honestly know why to this day it made such an immediate impact on me, but I just loved everything about playing in goal even including the responsibility and the pressure that you feel even as a youth player um and uh, it just became a, a lifelong passion and I'm lucky enough all all these years later to still do it every day
0: yeah so are you coaching still full time then with NC State like you're, are you are cuz the season's what September or August till...?
1: August till you lose August um, till you lose <laughs> August till you lose so we, we we made it as far as the sweet 16 this year Right. And um, the third round of the NCAA tournament, we we lost to UCLA out in Los Angeles this year, and that ended our season. But yeah, it's year round. Um, we are on a little bit of a break right now. The players, you know, are, are are students, of course, and so they just took finals, and everyone's gone home for the holidays. But we'll get back into it in January. I do some coaching with the local club too, North Carolina FC, um, the the youth club branch of the professional club. So I I stay pretty busy year round. Um, although you're catching me at a good time, we had our our winter goalkeeper camp, three night camp that finished last night. Right. So I'm at I'm at the start of about three weeks of downtime, which would be nice. Ah, it's decent. Nice. Yeah.
0: So just because you you obviously played in in Florida for a while and and but then you made that move um, over to the UK and for me when I was reading your book because I've kind of been on that same kind of journey of going from North America um, and just kind of going out on, you know, not knowing what's going to happen and just going, yeah, I'll go and see, go on trial and see what happens. Um, so when I read your book, I thought I've never related to a book as well as I did with yours. Um, you know, for a North American player in general to make that move to, this, to the UK is quite a big move um and you can relate to it on some level but i think specifically as a goalkeeper you don't get too many of those um especially in non-league football uh so i found your account of it strangely uh similar to mine um but if you could just talk a little bit about your time when you just went over to the uk and what that was like for you
1: yeah the the of course i mentioned the nasl earlier um uh... The problem, of course, is that the NASL died, expired, mm-hmm. sometime around 1985 or so when I was playing in college at Radford University. So, what had been my career ambition—to eventually play, you know, in goal for the for, for the team I supported, the Tampa Bay Rowdies—that um, that dream died along with the league. And so, I sort of had to recalibrate. I knew I wanted to play beyond college. My college experience wasn't very satisfying. I was. Um, I was unfocused and impatient, and I wanted more than that, than that level, uh, which ironically meant that I didn't perform that well at that level. You know, I, I, right. I. It's funny how if you think you're too good for something, it very often turns out you're you're completely wrong and you're not good <laughs> enough for it. So I was impatient to play beyond college, um, and uh, I, I latched on with with a team in Florida called the Orlando Lions, who were managed by an American named Mark Dillon, who himself had gone. Abroad and played in the Welsh League, right? And and, and he recommended it. He said, you know, you, you really should should think about trying to get yourself to England and um, you know playing at the non-league level, good non-league level uh, in the London area. And he had some connections, and including one at Bournemouth FC, which is the club I did end up going to. Yeah, and it is a little funny to think of it now because I think now uh, I would I would put much more care and effort and planning into, you know, going to spend a weekend at the beach than I did making this massive life move. <laughs> I, I, there, I had a phone number to call when I got to England uh, of the manager, John Drabwell. I had a place to stay for the first three or four days, a friend of the family who were willing to put me up for a few days, but didn't really have the the circumstances to ha- house me any longer than that. And so I went. That um, There really wasn't... Uh, much more than that, and and I actually tra- actually trained the same day I flew in. Um, I, I gave I gave John Draball a call to let him know I'd made it, and then he said, "Well, we're training at seven o'clock tonight in a gym if you want to come." And so I went. So I think if I recount that day, it started probably seven a.m. U.S. Eastern Time at, at the Miami International Airport. I flew to New York City. I flew across the Atlantic. To London, I got a train sorry, sorry, to, to, to Gatwick and got a train up to London and then got a train from there up into Hertfordshire, made it to my lodgings in Bournemouth and then um, went to a training session in, in, in a gymnasium and, and trained for an hour or so. So um,
0: did they did it, they you know, s- it, it it actually it sounds a little more adventurous than it,
1: it seemed at the time the complete normal Thing to do if I wanted to try to have a, a career in professional soccer, which was the ultimate job, ultimate goal, uh, but because I didn't see any other great options. Right, uh, you know. So so having a connection in England um, at a non-league club, obviously non-league is not full-time professional, but it's a pretty good start. It's a it's a pretty good way to see the standard of play and what's expected of you physically and and uh, emotionally. And sort of also just get used to the country because we're very similar countries, you know, but but different in other in in small but but persistent ways. Uh, so that was my experience of of getting across to Bournemouth, and and within within a week I found you know permanent lodging a, a short walk from from the from the from the ground, and uh, you know it, it ended up being a really good experience.
0: Yeah. I mean, what you're saying there about us being similar but having, you know, slightly different uh, thoughts and views on some things. When I try to explain to people back home in Canada uh, what it's like playing here, it's I explain to them that it, it is the same game but it is a different game at the same time in that, you know, every weekend, you know, you have your Premier League matches on, on TV and then you have the all the fans at those games. And then you go down into the championship who some clubs in those in that division are massive in itself, who get twenty, thirty thousand 30,000 at their games going to league one, league two. I mean, Sunderland are in league one right now and they get 30,000. And then you go all the way down into non-league and some of them get around five, 6,000. And then you have amateur football being played. So it's like the whole country is just for Saturday and Sunday, just focused on football. Which
1: yeah, it, yeah, it's it's a it's a complete immersion, yeah. immersive experience. Uh, it was even even back then in the '80s. Of course, it was different. Um The, the TV contracts weren't the same as they are now. There mm-hmm. weren't games on almost every night, but it, it still, it was everywhere in the culture. Yeah, and, and that that was one of the reasons I went. One of the frustrations I had, which I, I'm very glad to see the current generation of North American players. Doesn't really have to deal with quite so much is just justifying the existence of the sport. Right, yeah. So during that, my, that time I was with the Orlando Lions, I remember we undertook a few fundraising efforts and ticket drives and things like that, where the players would actually go out in groups and go to businesses and, and try to drum up interest and sponsorship and things. And it wasn't that people were hostile, but they were mostly indifferent and in many cases just completely unaware of the existence of, of the team. Right, and so it was one of the nicest things about um, my my time in England, and then later in Scotland, was no longer feeling like I had to justify the actual sport. Right, it was it was already um, interwoven into
0: the daily fabric of of life, in as it is almost everywhere else in the world. Yeah, exactly. Um, But do you find that's obviously changed now? like, to present day with, with 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 football in the U.S.?
1: Hugely, hugely. It's it's still not, because we have so many uh, sports that are unique, you know, to our continent, because we have NFL football and, and the NBA and, and college basketball also, and baseball, of course, in summer, because we have our own sports that aren't really played anywhere else, um, those will still command most of, of the headlines, but... Uh, the, you know, soccer now in, in North America is just a normal part of the sporting landscape. Nobody—it's not viewed with hostility and suspicion mm-hmm. as openly as it once was, or or indifference or confusion. Most people's kids play, or or their kids did play at one point, or they played themselves. It's—it's it's just no longer a, seen as a foreign thing, and that's yeah. great. Uh, one of the, the great things I see uh, coaching at the academy level now, in um, the youth level, is. None of these kids, boys or girls, they, they're not burdened with any sense of self-doubt about the actual sport. They they may wonder, you know, about their own abilities and their own future in it, and that's natural. But one of the problems we had back in those days was, was wondering, you know, is this even a viable uh, sport that will st- still be here in five years? Is what I'm doing now, is this, is this time well-invested? Because what if it doesn't take or make it at all? It's right. certainly you really did start to worry about that when the first version of the NASL flamed out. It did look like it might be curtains on the whole thing at that time.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, then, you know, because you've, you've transitioned into a, into a coaching career now. How long have you been probably coaching for now?
1: It's been a long time. I, uh, let's see, I, I did... Well, there was a little bit, there was a transition to coaching, and then I went back and played one more season. So I, I, I started coaching in the early 90s, um at Bradford University where I had played and I coached there a couple of years I then coached a year at Queens College in Charlotte when I moved to North Carolina and and then I and I think I talk about this in the book but I more or less got talked into playing again and I played one season in the what was called the US ISL with Coco Expos and I had a good season I didn't enjoy it because that that league was extremely poorly run and very unprofessional but but I, um, I did. It, we were a very good team and I, I had what I consider to be a good season and that was it for me That was 28 at the end of that season and uh, I just hadn't made enough of a living I, I'd made little drips and drabs of money here and there I was owed money after I played my last game for the Expos and it took forever to actually get it yeah. um, and I just sort of hit the end of my rope in terms of being able to put up with the, the lack of professionalism that was in the game back then compared to how you could live um, as a coach at the college level where the the funding was stable it wasn't based mm. on you know a soccer team trying to generate income it was funded by the university so um, I started getting serious about coaching then then after my, my playing career ended so since about 1997, I've been in it almost nonstop except for a couple year breaks break where I did a, a graduate degree in New York City
0: right, so would you say so for when you you kind of stopped playing in the early nineties, um, would you say your perspective on you know the position of goalkeeping has changed from when you used to play to you know your perspective now?
1: Well, my perspective has changed, yes, but one of the reasons for that is that goalkeeping itself has changed right That's so I, I I played through the. um, pass back law change. So my time in England and Scotland, you could still handle back passes. And then those years I was coaching at Radford, the new law came into effect where you could not handle a back pass. And that last season I played in 1995 was my real first introduction as a player to, to playing that way. Now, fortunately, it suited me, I will say, with no false modesty that i was a pretty decent outfield player and i'm two-footed and so i was okay handling back passes and playing balls out of the back um it ended a lot of careers yeah there were a lot of goalkeepers that were not suited for it and found themselves dropping down levels pretty rapidly when when it was sort of realized that that they were not good enough with their feet to deal with it under any kind of pressure so my perspective has necessarily changed on the position as we've seen changes in the position. So if you look right. at the current generation of top goalkeepers, um, guys like Ter Stegen and De Gea, they, goalkeepers in the '90s weren't built like that. They were not lean, athletic mm-hmm. uh, guys who looked like out, outfield players. Really, they were, you know, tended to be much bigger and blockier and, and stronger. Brad Friedel's probably a good example of maybe the last you know one of the last guys that that started in the pre-packs era and finished in it and he handled that tra- transition well but in general you don't really see um the great big heavy physique in goalkeeping that much anymore because you know teams want somebody that are, that's going to be adept at at playing the ball with their feet but not just that because a big guy can do that but but sort of it's really in the support phase. It's really in when you've played a ball out to your left back and then and then the ball gets circulated around the back four and the goalkeeper is out at the top of the box showing for the ball and, and taking touches across his body and playing it out the other way too. That's where somebody who in the old days might have been a really, really adept at dealing with a barrage of crosses under really physical heavy challenges the the physique that's good at that isn't necessarily good at for instance what somebody like ter Stegen or Ederson does right you know, the, the two just aren't that compatible anymore and so you see more of the latter in the game now
0: yeah absolutely I mean with Ederson and you know ter Stegen I mean, they play in, in in teams that you know use them and utilize them for their footwork uh, I think the same you could say for Hugo Lloris at at, at Tottenham. But then you've got, I guess, some teams, if I look at like a, a Tony Pulis side, I think he's at Middlesbrough right now, where his keepers probably won't need to use their feet like that. So do you think that, say, an Ederson or a Terstegen would do well in like a Middlesbrough side? Or do you think they're only best suited to those teams where they're utilized with their feet more?
1: Well, that's a good question, and that's why I always sort of dodge an answer when when the discussion of who the best goalkeeper in the world is and when that comes up. I feel like there are best goalkeepers for certain teams. So, um, you know, Ederson is absolutely the best goalkeeper for Manchester City because that's exactly how Pep wants his goalkeeper to play. And Mourinho's now gone, of course, but Ederson at Manchester United with a, a back line that plays much deeper and is not as interested in playing out of the back. It's not that he wouldn't do well there, it's just that his skill sets wouldn't be utilized as frequently, and you know, as often, or yes. as well. So, you know, I'm sure he could still handle the goalkeeping, but you wouldn't see the same display of skills, same as if, um, you know, Tristegan had been at United or an Atolian Pulis side, or Sam Allardyce side. Um, you know, before Sari came to Chelsea, Courtois was, was by a, a succession of Chelsea managers, never really asked to play out of the back and play with his feet. Yes. So, you know, that, that, that's that's why I say, and I, th- I think you're going along the same lines with me here, um, it's it's really about which goalkeepers are best suited for their teams and the way their teams play, the way the manager wants the side to play. Right. And different skill sets lend themselves to, to different different teams.
0: Yeah, I mean, when you look at, at Petr Cech at Arsenal right now, um, I mean, he got a bit of grief at the beginning of the season because Emery came in and stamped, you know, he wanted to play that certain way of football right away, and I felt bad for Chuck because he came up against against as Manchester City in the first game and then Chelsea in the second game, and because there was such a high press, you could see he wasn't very comfortable with that. But then people were saying, just people on you know look on Twitter and their feedback, and he doesn't know how to play the ball at the back, and I don't think you get to Peruchek's level. And achieve what he achieved without being able to do that. Um, but then I, the second, the other keeper at Arsenal is, uh, who, is it Leno? Leno? Leno. Now, yeah. do you th- do you feel he's a better fit for that Emory system, or do you think Czech has just kind of come in under a bit of scrutiny f- for those first two games?
1: Yeah, I think there's a little truth to both of those things. I Leno did play it more consistently uh, when he was in Germany in the Bundesliga. Mm-hmm. But I do think Czech was somewhat unfairly criticized those first few games. Most of that his most of it came from that admittedly very strange ball he played out for a corner across the face of his own goal. Yes, yeah. Where I I I, I don't recall ever seeing anybody do that before. I, I kind of feel like he started to play a ball and tried to change his mind and stopped and, and, and half followed through and ended up sort of half striking a ball that, that fortunately didn't go in his own goal. Um, you know, some of the guys that, that do analytics, um, some elements of goalkeeping are just always going to n- not lend themselves well to analytics. And so as hard as people try... to to quantify shot-stopping, there's no such thing as the same shot replicated. The the same shot from the same spot might have different spin, Mm -hmm. um, different degree of defenders obstructing the view in in front of the goalkeeper, etc. So I'm I'm not the biggest fan of of attempts to quantify shot-stopping. But there are some people that, that quantify distribution really well because you can look at every ball a goalkeeper plays and determine, was it a good ball that was successfully received by a teammate? How many opponents did it cut out? And the guys that do this found that, that checks numbers are actually pretty good. Um, they stand up really well in the modern game. Maybe not with the very, very elite distributing goalkeepers like Ederson and Allison and a few others, Tristegan. but but pretty well with most of his contemporaries. And it's not a weakness of his. And like like you said, he didn't get to the level that he's at. Yeah, he's, he's played in two Champions League finals. He's he's won multiple league titles. Um, he's played at the highest level for well over a decade now without being able to, to kick a ball any way you'd like it to be kicked. Yeah, you exactly. Know, any sort of trajectory, any kind of spin, flighted, driven, whatever, he can do it. You know, the question is, has he been asked to do it as much as some other goalkeepers? And so, if the answer is no, then suddenly you're asking him to do it a lot. And as you said, the first two games of the year of the season are against high-pressing teams that, that, are, that are not giving a lot of easy options. Then there's going to be an adjustment, and I would have, I would have liked him to have had had a chance to settle in a little bit longer, because let's say Arsenal never had bought Bernd Leno, um, I think that no one would have any complaints about his distribution right now. Still, likely wouldn't put him among the very best at it. Yes. but it wouldn't be he wouldn't be any sort of liability.
0: Exactly. Um, let's actually go back to to specifically more about you um, for a sec. I just want to know, after playing in the UK, what did you find was like your greatest lesson, if there is one that you can think of?
1: Yeah, I I, I can think of a few. Um, technically, the biggest lesson for me was and was actually striking a ball. Um, it uh, growing up in Florida, you don't realize how easy those conditions are for a goalkeeper. And I know you're from much further north, so. When you grow up in Florida, it's always warm. The fields are always green and soft and lush. Right. Uh, it's it's just easy to kick a ball, if that makes sense. No, I get the that. Yeah. You know, the conditions are just right. And, and so when I was a, a schoolboy player, a youth player in high school, I just thought I kicked the ball fine. I, I, you know, I hit my drop kicks, they go past midfield. I can take a goal kick and get it up, up pretty much to midfield. And when I got to England, I realized the conditions, especially in the 80s, because one of the great revolutions in the game has been turf science. Yes. If anyone doesn't believe that, all you have to do is go on YouTube and just put in some random highlight videos from the 80s. And, and even the top flight teams, they, they, you know, the, in midwinter, the, the pitches were just mud. So you can imagine what non-league pitches were like. <laughs> yeah. um, and so uh, to the fact that it was wet all the time, the pitches were bad, lots of mud. A lot of times, a lot of teams put sand in the goal mouth or even sawdust or straw and then in order to deal with those wet conditions the balls tended to be these really hard plasticky um, balls i think umbro made most of them and, and they had like a hard plastic shell on them which made them difficult to catch yeah and difficult to kick and it really exposed my limitations in that in that regard i i had thought of myself as someone who was good with his feet who could take a good goal kick, who could hit a ball with his left foot and every, all these things. And it, it just didn't go very well. Um, you know, my, my first, I, I remember my, my debut for, for Bournemouth. I kept a clean sheet. We won, but I distinctly remember really struggling with my kicking and, and and feeling self-conscious about it and thinking it was very clear to everybody that my kicking wasn't at the standard that it should be. So technically, I would say it was that Um but also dealing with crosses because the game was very aerial back yes. then. Possibly part in part because the pitches were so bad. You, it wasn't easy even if you wanted to be a passing side. It's so much easier just to hoof balls into the box. So I had to learn to you know come off my line and deal with physical challenges. And then communication because more was expected and demanded of me as a goalkeeper by by managers and teammates than I had been used to in the states. I. I something would happen that to me would seem pretty innocuous and someone would turn around and yell at me and say, why didn't you say, you know, why didn't you let me know? And it hadn't really occurred to me that I needed to be giving more information, more consistently being more specific with my communication. So it, it, Honestly, uh, I had two different spells at Bournemouth and a spell in Scotland in between. But that first half of a season at Bournemouth, I I came back a transformed goalkeeper, and I only actually played one game for the first team in that spell. Right. But just being there and training every day, playing the game I did play and the reserve games I played, and then I was on trial at, at Brentford FC for a, an extended time. All the standards were higher, and more was asked of me, both both technically and tactically, and with communication that. That I was never the same after that. I was. I went back to the Orlando Lions, and I had some some players there who had, you know, had not always been my biggest supporters. Who had sort of expressed um, that they felt I needed to get better too, and they told me I did, and that and that was a good feeling.
0: Yeah, I I can I can kind of relate to that very much. But sure you can. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird how a lot of the things that you're saying I can understand exactly what you're talking about, especially when you're talking about you know your own your self-conscious about for you you're kicking and and it's always kind of at the back of your mind that you know am i good enough or am i not good enough and i think especially in goalkeeping there can be a lot of time when you're not doing a whole lot so there's a whole lot of thinking that's going on and and if it's a negative negative thinking it just it doesn't work um so in your opinion how because you talk about you know self-doubt and, and questioning a bit in your book how do you how did you deal with your own self-doubt and then do you have any maybe advice for younger goalkeepers on how to deal with self self-doubt now
1: yeah I think one one advantage that younger goalkeepers have now is that sports psychology is is um, a prominent field and there are a lot if you don't have access we, we have a full-time sports psychologist at NC state. She's fantastic. The girls speak to her a lot. She does a lot of activities with them, a lot of one-on-one stuff, too. Um, if you don't have access to an actual sports psychologist, lots of them have written really good books. Lots of them have lots of good presentations on YouTube. So that the, there are resources out there that younger goalkeepers, athletes in general, can take advantage of yes. to uh, take advantage of the, the real hard science that, that is behind a lot of the, the modern ideas. Some of the things I did... Um, you know, I, I, I actually had a pretty good core belief in my abilities. I knew I could make saves. I knew I was a, an exceptionally good shot stopper with good hands and natural agility and quickness. I I had a, a bigger picture confidence issue about where I fit in in the football world and whether being good enough even... Was going to make a difference or not? So, right. I, I guess I kind of I, I had my entire identity wrapped up in into being a goalkeeper and being a professional goalkeeper, and so it made it hard for me to let a simple bad back pass or, or shank goal kick just be that. You know, something like yes. that would would happen, and I would assign it greater importance than it really had. Um, so, I would certainly encourage. Younger players, not to do that, just to recognize that the law of averages is such that you know you're 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 gonna bobble a shot every now and then. You'll you'll misplay a pass. You'll misjudge a cross. Um, and so, not to let moments like that shake your core confidence. Understand that your surface confidence, any given game, is going to be affected by what just happened. Yes, and that's okay. There there are times that you're just not going to feel your very best. As long as you know, sort of at core. I'm still a good goalkeeper. Anything that happens to me in this game, I've dealt with successfully in the past. There's no surprises once you get to a certain age, a certain stage, and um, there is no great uh, secret that, that someone's going to uncover about me. Some some element of the game that I just can't handle. If you've done it successfully in the past, you can. There's no reason you can't keep doing it.
0: Right. I mean, when for me, I understand that as well. In that, you know, you bobble a shot. And say you bobble it, but you get it on the second attempt, it's all fine. But in your mind, you're thinking, I shouldn't have bobbled that first shot. Right. What my dad used to tell me, because my dad used to play on goal as well, so he'd say, if you watch any game that you're not playing, so if you're just watching from the side, if you watch, if a keeper makes a mistake, but they recover from it, do you keep watching the game or do you focus on that keeper's mistake? And you're usually saying, I'll just keep watching the game. Um... If they have a bad touch, do you focus on their bad touch or you just keep watching the rest of the game? And I guess it depends on if you're a coach or not, but if you're just watching it fun, if you're watching it for leisure as a fan, you don't really focus on a keeper's little things, little mistakes. So I think my dad used to say, just think as if you're a recreational fan watching the game. Is it going to matter in a, in 90 minutes that your first touch wasn't good enough or that... You know, your hands weren't clean on a strike, but you still made the save. Um, and I That's think- a
1: really good, that's a great point that he makes. Yeah, uh, it, it And is. he's right. Some, I actually like to use a dancing analogy when people who go, you know, uh, go to a club and get dragged out on the dance floor and they're not confident dancers, they feel like everyone's looking at them. Yes. And how funny and silly and dumb they look dancing. Nobody is actually paying any attention to that. <laughs> yeah. um, although I'm sure in my case they were, but... but <laughs> Uh, no one's really paying attention and and look if you make an actual clangor and give up a goal that is a topic of conversation that is a feature of the game that doesn't get forgotten but the the sort of things that we're speaking of here where you maybe misplay a cross or punch a ball poorly or something like that you're right it gets forgotten very quickly by most people even people in the game yes recognize that's just a thing that happens sometimes and, and and we move on from it and I mean, really, uh, I, I think everyone's probably seen this advice, but you have just got to have a very short memory as a goalkeeper when things like that happen in a game, and and recognize you can't go back in time and change it. It, if you're lucky enough that it didn't give up away, give a you know, cost a goal, then don't dwell on it any more than that. Exactly. And, and bring it up with your coaching staff after the game, and if it's something that needs to be addressed and worked on, otherwise, certainly during the game itself, during those 90 minutes, just forget it and move on.
0: Exactly um in your book uh you did write a little bit about how you would kind of do match reviews of your own games um which i found really interesting Because i've done that a few times not i don't think when i read it you did it fairly consistently i was fairly inconsistent with it um but i do know a lot of people um if you go to different uh conferences we'll talk about journaling and and um how that's you know healthy for your mental health did you think that you know did you find that as a form of journaling your match reviews, and did you find that actually you know helped with your performances at all?
1: Well, I think it did because it gave me a way to we talked about you know uh analytics before and, and quantifying things it 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 gave me a way to deeply consider everything I'd just done in the game so for for people who don't know maybe didn't read the book i I, would, it, I I mainly did it season 1990, when I was at Bournemouth and I would go home after every game and I would sit down and handwrite a couple of pages about my account of the game. And I would, I would in the header at the top, I put all the pertinent information, the date, the opponent, the, the stadium, the weather, the score. And then, um, I would just handwrite, you know, how it went chronologically from first minute to last my involvement in the game. I, I wouldn't really spend a lot of time talking about maybe what happened at the other end, but, um, and then I would give myself a rating out of 10 and I was pretty, pretty, I wasn't too generous, um, on myself. I still have all the handwritten versions of, of those and I, they're fun to look at every now and then. And I think I was intentionally a little harsh on myself in my ratings. I very rarely gave myself anything over a seven. Right. Um, you know, either a game or two where I made a couple of good saves and saved a penalty, and maybe I'd get a seven-five or something. But um, it was a good way to—it was a good way to help sort of brain dump after a game. Yes. I don't know if you have this experience, but I know a lot of goalkeepers have the experience where it's hard to sleep after a game. Yes. You have so much nervous energy that goes into preparing for the match, and then. No matter what happens in the game, you're never going to expend all of the adrenaline, adrenaline, and nervous energy that's built up, because some of that is fueled by anxiety and the fight, fight or flight response. Yes. And the physical demand of goalkeeping just isn't enough to extinguish all of that, and so you take it home with you, um, and then you lie there in bed replaying. You know, if it was a good game, you're excited and happy to replay it. If it wasn't so good, then you sort of this pervasive sense of dread, and you can't shake it. So I found that writing it out really did help brain dump it to the point where by the time I completed that little match report, I was kind of tired of now that that game has now dominated my entire day from when I woke up to here we are eleven thirty or twelve midnight and and I'm I'm ready to let it go at this stage. That was also at the start of when I begun to discover about myself that I I liked to write in general. Uh, so it was sort of satisfying that urge. I didn't know really what else to write about at the time. I was undeveloped as a writer and had no you know, literary skills of any to speak of, but it was really good and therapeutic and I was glad I did it. I only wish I had done it again that last season I played in 1995. By then I was doing all kinds of serious writing and publishing writing and things, and so I didn't feel like I needed to do it as a literary exercise, but I wish I did because I would, uh, um, it's fun to go back now, 25 years later or 30 years later, and and be able to see these details that are written. You know, we think we have photographic memory, but but some things you're just not going to remember. And when you write them down, you can look at it and say, "That's right, I remember that now." Yes. Wow, that moment. You know?
0: <laughs> That's really weird to think about, like 20, 30 years ago, that you know your thoughts then, and you can still look and think and see exactly what you were thinking.
1: It's uh, it's even it's even weirder than that since I hand wrote them and I, I've I, I've typed them in at some point I typed them into Google Docs but um, I still have the the you know the actual original spiral notebook full of all of them and and uh, when you when I look at those I can I can I remember not only by reading the match details I, I remember not only the match but I actually remember sitting down and and writing them I remember you know. Digging up a pen somewhere and and getting to work. One of the ways I knew, one of the things that it did, and I I guess it's debatable whether this is good or not. But there were moments in games where I would think about how I was going to write about what had just happened. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know if that's either good—that in the way that's not good because you know maybe I'm not focusing on the moment, but also it's preventing me from obsessively, you know, pressurizing myself to be perfect. But uh, something would happen and I would think, oh, you know, uh, Davey didn't listen to me at all when I shouted for that ball. I'm going to write that tonight. Yes,
0: <laughs> that's so, so. weird. Um, is, so being is there anything that you would take from, say, the English game that you think would be great to add to, like, the, the North American version of football or vice versa? Is there anything you, that you maybe want to take from the North American game and apply to the English game?
1: Well, I think the way things were back then, I think a lot of that did make it into the American game. I think, I think you know, just by by virtue of sharing a language and most elements of, of common culture, you know, we we have been pretty strongly influenced by by the English version of the game. Um, I guess one of the things that I really admire still to this day about English football culture and Scottish too is. Is how they really are um, accountable to the fan base. So if if a a team is playing poorly, they get you know supporters let their displeasure be known, and there are some things that just won't be tolerated in England. And you know, obvious lack of effort Mm. uh, for one, you don't see that often. Most players that have gotten to some sort of level, professional or even semi-professional level, are, are are you know they're trying. But not everyone tries their very hardest all the time. And the English are really good at sussing out when someone is maybe not as fully committed as they might be. Um, Here in the States, I think most people know some of the problems we have with player development and in the youth game, the whole pay-to-play model. Mm. And and you, you do sometimes get players who don't feel like they... Have to put their heart and soul into it, and that's fine. They don't. Um, but if you're at, you know, if you reach professional level where people are paying to watch you play, then there is an accountability that you'd like to see there. And so that's that's something I think that's that's something I think England is gifted to most of the world is is this sense of, you know, the fans are really the ultimate owners of the game, and you're you're accountable to them, and you really, it's 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 the least you can do to give your very best. Effort every every time out. I would say that. Uh, and in terms of vice versa, like the, how it could go in reverse, anything from from the U.S. to England. Uh, again, I think they have now caught up um, and are no longer behind in this. But when I went to England, I was pretty shocked at how there was no element of sports science in the game. Right. Um, so, I, you know, I played in, in college in the, the mid-80s, 84, 85, 86, so this is a long time ago, and it's, it's well before what we would consider the modern era of sports science, but we still did, um, you know, a weights program. We still did strength and conditioning, speed and agility work, plyometrics, and we knew it wasn't a good idea to smoke, uh, um, or to be, you know, to, to smoke cigarettes, or to drink a lot, you know, Yeah certainly not the night before a game but not the night of a game either or after a game or anything like that. So I was a little bit surprised if not a little if not downright shocked by how none of those elements seemed to exist. Not just when I was at Bournemouth but when I was on trial at some full-time, you know, professional league clubs and when I, a couple of years later even at Dunfermline Athletic, I remember there was a sort of like a universal weight machine in the corner of of the dressing room that I never saw anybody go anywhere near. <laughs> um so that has – that's what I would have said back in those days. Oh, and, and the other thing is tea at halftime. Yeah. Um, you know, when we, we would drink some kind of fluid, you know, hydration drink, um, they brought in these trays of tea, um, <laughs> which, you know, sugar and caffeine's not the worst thing to put in your body at halftime of a match, but milk, you know, there was milk in the tea, and I don't think you'd find too many dietitians recommending that so no that is all all you have to do is watch any of the documentaries that are out now and you know that, that that England's as as much in the in the cutting edge of that as anybody now but it certainly wasn't wasn't back then
0: I mean it's funny that you say that about the the strength and conditioning because Brad Friedel put out a book uh, years ago now um, and he said when he moved from Liverpool when he moved to Liverpool um, he said he that caught his attention as well was that his high school gym setup was better than what one of the best teams in Europe had at that time. And yeah,
1: yeah, just, I remember, yeah. I remember I read his book too. And, um, you know, that was, it was just a different era. And, um, and then the other element too was the, the drinking. It was just the, the drinking culture in English soccer was, yeah. um, it's just, it was unbelievable. And I, I think, a lot of people have credited Arsene Wenger with changing that. Certainly, he did it to a, great, a large degree when, when he went to Arsenal and changed the way that players, you know, prepared their bodies and, and the diet changed a lot. Um, and the recognition that it really you pay a price if you if you get falling down drunk two or three times a week, you pay a price physically for that. Yes. So all that stuff's changed. I would like to think, like modern day, like right now, what would I take from the the North American game, the U.S. game, to the English game? I I I'm sure there are things. Um, maybe maybe that you know maybe maybe there is a still um, comes more from the American character of individualism, and so there's players that are a little bit more willing. Um, just maybe the the level of confidence i see in in academy level players who haven't really proven themselves yet but they but they rate themselves and i think that's a good thing right i think i think in england sometimes they're a little bit quick to try to cut people down to size you know they don't want they don't want youth players wearing flashy colored boots and things like that which i mean i i i tend to favor the idea of letting young players express themselves and There's no reason to cut anyone down to size because the game will do that. If it turns out they're not good enough, no one will have to tell them. They just won't make it. Right. Uh, But until that happens, uh, you know, um, I'd I'd sort of maybe like to see just a little more tolerance displayed towards players that are sort of a little bit more maverick in their approach, a little more individualistic and creative and skillful.
0: Right. That's a a good answer. (laughs) Um, Just when we were talking about Brad Field there, um... You know, there was that, that era of goalkeepers. I mean, for me as a Canadian, we only had a few. I mean, the only one I can think of that played a decent Premier League level was Craig Forrest um, at West Ham. And so growing up, I was mainly following American goalkeepers playing in the Premier League. So you're Casey Keller, Tim Howard, Brad Friedel, uh, Marcus Hanneman. Um, and, you know, that was maybe, what, 2005 through to 2010, 11. Around there, I guess, mm-hmm. um, where I'm not saying that the states don't have good goalkeepers now, because you know there's uh, what, Bill Hamid, Sean Johnson, Joe Bendik, but you know why are there not as many American goalkeepers playing in the Premier League as there once were?
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting topic. It's one I've I've actually thought about a lot, and I think that the success of those players you mentioned. There were a couple of more. There was Ian Foyer. Um, there was uh, Jurgen Sommer, who was at QPR. Right. Ian Foyer was at Luton, I think. Um, I think that our federation and, and, and U.S. coaching and goalkeeper coaching took credit for the success of those players, where their credit was really due solely to them. And, and some individual coaches they had, obviously, in their lives that, mm. that helped them. But Brad Friedel's success, Casey Keller's success... These guys succeeded because they, in addition to being talented um, and and top class athletes, they were really driven. They were not satisfied. You know, I mean, I, I think I, I played in the same league as those guys for a year or two in the old USISL, and they, they weren't satisfied with that. They, that wasn't where they saw themselves ending up. And so they just did the work and were willing to. To you know, to buy an airplane ticket and fly across an ocean and and walk into a, a dressing room where nobody knew them. But unlike the way I did it, they, they're they're walking into a dressing room with players that played in the World Cup and and um, you know Champions League, European Cup stuff. And they just they made successes out of themselves. And and so um, there was a great sense of self satisfaction and self congratulatory talk around U.S. soccer in the coaching circles and U.S. goalkeeping about the success of those guys and now a generation later we don't have that right uh, you know or just the tail end of the same generation with Tim Howard only having recently come back from England we don't have it and that's because i don't think our curriculum has prepared us to create world class goalkeepers uh, we we've been really good at producing a lot of very good goalkeepers mm-hmm. a lot of them but if you talk about world class in that time um, Who did I have this debate with just recently? And I'm the biggest fan of of those guys: Tim, Tim Howard, Brad Friedel, and Casey Keller. Um, but you know, the, the 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 there's different tiers at the professional level, and the very top elite tier in the in the '90s and 2000s were guys like Toldo and Buffon and Casillas and Neuer and Vandasar and Ali Khan and and um, obviously Gigi Buffon has spanned a couple of generations, and now there's Tersteg and De Gea, all those guys. And they were never at that level. And people in this country sort of assumed they were, um, and they then therefore assumed that the system had produced them and that the system would keep producing them. And so I think what you're seeing now is they were outliers, and the system is producing pretty good college goalkeepers. Yes. Um, You know, with a a pretty – what I see mostly being in the college game on the women's side, but obviously – you know, I'm, I'm around the men's, men's side of things, and I see a lot of games and all that. I see these really good athletes that you could put in goal and, and shoot, you know, take shots, and you'll see good saves and things. But there's a deficiency in reading the game and the smaller nuances, anticipation, starting position, communication. Distribution has gotten much better. because I credit some of the top flight goalkeepers for making it sexy. You know, right. everyone wants to hit a side volley now. yes. And, Everyone wants to play these defense splitting passes, and so that's good because you know now you see people want to emulate that, and so distribution's getting better. But I still see these deficiencies in American goalkeepers regarding these things I just mentioned. You know the nuances, the nuances of the position, um, and I, and I you know we don't actually offer a coaching badge through the U.S. Federation now a goalkeeper specific coaching badge there's right. not a license to the USSF there is to the NSCAA um, but US soccer has actively sought to undermine NSCAA coaching licenses don't know you know how, how aware people are of that but they've made it a requirement um, to hold a position within the federation you, your, your NSCA badges are no good to you your license is no good you have to be licensed to the federation Right. Well, that's fine don't actually have, offer one in Even, you know tony DeChico used to run that program in the nsca yeah. um you know tony's no longer with us there is still a program there but that program is irrele- irrelevant to the federation's concerns and they don't have one of their own so i don't know where the next generation is going to come from but they're going to have to do it essentially again the way the guys previous to them did which is you know through their own efforts it's similar on the women's side where there's You know, women are just more advanced in every every respect um, in terms of their peers globally. But we've seen in the last five six years that they've lost a lot of the advantage they used to have, and the rest of the world's catching up really fast. Right. Countries that you know the U.S. women used to beat seven nothing are now more than a good game for them, and and you see that in goalkeeping too. You just you still see these. Deficiencies in the decision making and the reading of the game and anticipation, communication—that's the kind of stuff that I think if we had more of a national curriculum, um, where where these standards were set and were applied, you know, uniformly and regionally around the country, I think it would be better right now.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough for the states, especially with first of all the the sheer size of the country compared to say England, uh, even Iceland. I mean, the amount of uh, UEFA qualified coaches in Iceland to uh, active players. I, I don't even remember what the stat is, but it's kids there have a good amount of level of coaching available to them. Um, but because it's such a small country, it's a lot easier to to have everyone on board with what their goals are. Whereas I yeah, find sure. in the states, yeah, we're,
1: we're, we're definitely disadvantaged by that, just the sheer geographic scale. But we do we do have a federation who who have the responsibility of setting a national curriculum, and then you know I, I alluded to one of the problems, which is that they they waged what amounted to you know uh, a war against uh, an entity in the NSCA that existed almost solely just for coaching education. Yes, and uh, so you know. It's it's definitely not a, a healthy state of affairs when you when you have your federation um, with a contentious relationship with an entity like that, and then at the youth club level, we've got now this this war not war I shouldn't say that a conflict between you know the development academy, which is the youth development arm of the federation, and then the ECNL, which is a, a private league of of youth clubs. Um Again, you know anyone that may listen overseas might not have any idea what i'm talking about, but it would almost be analogous to um you see actually you've seen some of this in the past with the english f a and the Premier League, but they are not aligned they yes. they have different interests and they're run by different bodies, and people have in the past talked about the damaging effect that's had on the English national side mm-hmm. um so we're dealing with something similar here, and, and yeah, and until we have um, until we found ways to overcome that, and certainly until we've implemented a, a consistent way to coach goalkeepers um, to a really high standard, not just technically, but also tactically, I think we're going to struggle to see American goalkeepers making an impact on the global stage as they did not that long ago.
0: Right, right. So then, what would your advice be then for any young aspiring goalkeepers, whether it be young pros, uh, college players, do you have any advice for them after saying something like that?
1: Yeah, I think in the absence of of sort of like a national curriculum curriculum that you would have that they've got in Spain and Germany and places where they just crank out goalkeepers, it's all about who you surround yourself with in your immediate orbit. You know, if you're a 14-year-old... Goalkeeper who loves watching De Gea or Kostegen and wants to be the next one of those, then make sure that you're at a club where you're getting a high level of goalkeeper coaching. Um, you know, with people that really know the position. They don't have to have been, you know, decorated ex pros themselves. They just have to be really, really well versed in in the demands of the position. That can give you a high level of training, and then find people to emulate. And so. You know, again, it's great to watch watch those people on TV. You can watch if you're a female goalkeeper and you watch Alyssa Nehar or Ashlyn Harris or mm-hmm. some of the top goalkeepers in WSL. Um, you know, we have Caitlin Rowland here at NCFC, and she's as good as there is. And so, like, I, I always tell the, the, the young players in our club, go to those games. Go to the games and watch those goalkeepers and watch everything. Don't just wait for them to make saves. Watch how they warm up. Watch how they're conducting themselves when the ball's at the under, other end of the pitch. Uh, I think, you know, role models uh, and even a degree of hero worship is, um, is, a, is a really, really good learning and motivational tool for any young player. When it gets a little older and you're talking about, like, college players who want to play pro um, or, or even, even, let's say, like, USL players or, or NASL players who would like to play overseas in one of the top leagues – I think the thing there is, is you have to be willing and just ready for uh, – ready to have to prove yourself daily. Right. Um, you know, just the constant need to prove your ability. Have, have faith and belief in your ability, but recognize that one good training session or even one good game um, will be forgotten. Not willfully, not with any malice, but just because it is a job. It is a job. It's it's you know it's it's not fun for everybody. You will play with people that don't actually enjoy playing football or watching it. Mm-hmm. I, I had teammates like that. Um, I think we all have. And, and but it is their job. It is their livelihood. They take it deadly seriously, and they will hold you accountable for their success. Um, a goalkeeper has a, a, a an inordinate influence over who wins and loses a game. And and so, you know, people will be very vested in your performance and just expect that going in and sort of steal yourself to it and it'll make you a better player and a better goalkeeper. And, um, you know, as long as you're not shocked by it or take too long to adjust to it, it will very quickly seem normal.
0: Right, right. Love that. Well, we're just about, I guess, coming to the the end of it man, because we've got through quite a bit there. Yeah, we Um, covered a lot of ground. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I I love to read anything about. Obviously, you like to read as well. I've seen some of your photos on Twitter. I've seen your bookshelf. It's massive. Um, Is Is there any book that you would recommend? Not just about football, about sports in general, sports psychology that you have found, you know, very uh, beneficial. And do you think that other people involved in sports, goalkeeping, would get a good read out of that as well?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I I enjoy books from athletes who's had kind of a similar ca- tra- career trajectory as my own. I mean, I read David Beckham's book and I and it was fine, <laughs> but you know, if you're if you're born, I'm not saying he didn't work hard. He worked very hard, but he's a really talented guy. Obviously, going to be a success at the, at the highest level. So there's not a lot to learn from that. Um, so for for players that feel like they have a mountain to climb and things to overcome. Um, There's a guy named Gary Nelson who wrote a book um, called Left Foot in the Grave. That was actually his second book. There's one that he wrote uh, when he was still a player. And it sort of details that sort of gritty life in the lower leagues back in the 90s, maybe early 2000s. Unfortunately, I can't remember the name of that first book, but both of them are good insights into... Particularly the second one because he's a player manager. So now instead of just concerning himself with his own career, his own playing ability, he now is trying to find a way to make a team successful where he's in charge of, you know, a whole squad full of players who have different levels of ability and, and different individual agendas, etc. cetera. So um, that'd be a good one to look for. Gary Nelson, I think it's Gary with two R's. Um there's also some really good sports psychology books out there. Um, I p- forgive me for forgetting the name of him, but he publishes books through my publisher, through Benny and Kearney. So, you know, that people could look him up. I think it's Dan Abrams.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I know Dan Abrams. Yeah, yeah. Dan
1: Abrams. So, he's the same publisher as me. And then also the same publisher in me as, as mine in fact the way I got hooked up with the publisher is Rich Lee, the former Watford goalkeeper. Oh yeah, yeah. Brentford and some other clubs yes. he wrote a book and it's uh, it's really it's it's just a Bryce <laughs> sorry I had to yell at my dog it's um, a story of, of one season of his career but he's just again it, it's sort of in diary format it's, it's not really it's, narrative it's, gra- but it's
0: called Graduation right?
1: yes that's yeah, it graduation yeah I have coverage. it yeah it's uh, good that's a good one because it, it just he has a lot of ups and downs in a in a, in a short period of time, and and it's it's always I think illuminating to see how people handle those.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, because he was at Watford, and he overlapped with uh, with Jay Demerit, um, whose right. whose story is also unbelievable as well. Going from yeah, the there's only- a movie
1: if people want the Jay Demerit.